0: Chapter Twenty-Three, of Cleopatra, by Georg Ebers, translated by Mary J. Safford. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty-Three. After accompanying Dion to the harbor. The architect had gone to the forum to converse with the men he met there and learn what they feared and expected in regard to the future fate of the city. All news reached this meeting place first, and he found a large number of Macedonian citizens who, like himself, wished to discuss passing events in these decisive hours. The scene was very animated, for the most contradictory messages were constantly arriving from the fleet and the army. At first they were very favorable, then came the news of the treason, and soon after of the desertion of the cavalry and foot-soldiers. A distinguished citizen had seen Mark Antony, accompanied by several friends, dashing down the quay. The goal of their flight was the little palace on the Coma grave men whose opinion met with little opposition thought that it was the duty of the imperator now that fate had decided against him and nothing remained save a life sullied by disgrace to put himself to death with his own hand like brutus and so many other noble romans tiding soon came that he had attempted to do what the best citizens expected gorgias could not endure to remain longer in the farm but hastened to the coma though it was difficult to force his way to the wall where a breach had been made he had found the portion of the shore from which the promontory ran densely crowded with people from whom he learned that antony was no longer in the palace and the sea filled with boats a corpse was just being borne out of the little palace on the street of the king and among those who followed gorgias recognized one of antony's slaves the man's eyes were red with weeping he readily obeyed the architect's sign and sobbing bitterly told him that the hapless general after his army had betrayed him fled hither when he heard in the palace that cleopatra had preceded him to hades he ordered his body slave eros to put an end to his life also the worthy man drew back pierced his own breast with his sword and sank dying at his master's feet but antony exclaiming that eros's example had taught him his duty thrust the short sword into his breast with his own hand yet deep and severe as was the wound it did not destroy the tremendous vitality of the gigantic roman with touching entreaties he implored the bystanders to kill him but no one could bring himself to commit the deed meanwhile cleopatra's name coupled with the wish to follow her was constantly on the lips of the imperator at last diomedes the queen's private secretary appeared to bring him by her orders to the mausoleum where she had taken refuge antony as if animated with fresh vigour assented and while being carried thither gave orders that eros should have a worthy burial even though dying it would have been impossible for the most generous of masters to permit any kindness rendered to pass unrequited The slave again wept aloud as he uttered the words, but Gorgias hastened at once to the tomb. The nearest way, the street of the king, had become so crowded with people who had been forced back by Roman soldiers between the theatre of Dionysus and the corner of the Muses that he had been compelled to reach the building through a side street. The key was already unrecognizable and even in the other streets the populace showed a foreign aspect instead of peaceful citizens roman soldiers in full armor were met everywhere instead of greek egyptian and syrian faces fair and dark visages of alien appearance were seen the city seemed transformed into a camp here he met a cohort of fair-haired germans yonder another with locks of red whose home he did not know and again a vexel of numidian or pannonian horsemen at the temple of the dioscuri he was stopped a hispanian maniple had just seized antony's son antyllus and after a hasty court-martial killed him his tutor theodotus had betrayed him to the romans but the infamous fellow was being led with bound hands after the corpse of the hapless youth because he was caught in the act of hiding in his girdle a costly jewel which he had taken from his neck before his departure for the island gorgias heard that the scoundrel had been sentenced to crucifixion at last he succeeded in forcing a passage to the tomb which he found surrounded on all sides by roman lictors and the scythian guards of the city who however permitted him as the architect to pass the numerous obstacles by which he had been delayed spared him from becoming an eye-witness of the most terrible scenes of the tragedy which had just ended but he received a minute description from the queen's private secretary, a well-disposed Macedonian who had accompanied the wounded Antony, and with whom Gorgias had become intimately acquainted during the building of the mausoleum. Cleopatra had fled to the tomb as soon as the fortune of war turned in favour of Octavianus. No one was permitted to accompany her except Charmian and Iris, who had helped her close the heavy brazen door of the massive building the false report of her death which had induced antony to put an end to his life had perhaps arisen from the fact that the queen was literally in the tomb when born in the arms of his faithful servants he reached the mausoleum mortally wounded the queen and her attendants vainly endeavoured to open the heavy brazen portal but cleopatra ardently longed to see her dying lover she wished to have him near to render the last services, assure him once more of her devotion, close his eyes, and if it was so ordered die with him. So she and her attendants had searched the place, and when Iris spoke of the windlass which stood on the scaffold to raise the heavy brass plate bearing the bas-relief of love conquering death, the queen and her friends hastened up the stairs, the bearer below fastened the wounded man to the rope, and Cleopatra herself stood at the windlass to raise him, aided by her faithful companions diomedes averred that he had never beheld a more piteous spectacle than the gigantic man hovering between heaven and earth in the agonies of death and while suffering the most terrible torture extending his arms longingly towards the woman he loved though scarcely able to speak he tenderly called her name but she made no reply like iris and charmian she was exerting her whole strength at the windlass in the most passionate effort to raise him the rope running over the pulley cut her tender hands her beautiful face was terribly distorted but she did not pause until they had succeeded in lifting the burden of the dying man higher and higher till he reached the floor of the scaffolding the frantic exertion by which the three women had succeeded in accomplishing an act far beyond their strength though it was doubled by the power of the most earnest will and ardent longing would nevertheless have failed in attaining its object had not diomedes at the last moment come to their assistance he was a strong man and by his aid the dying roman was seized drawn upon the scaffolding and carried down the staircase to the tomb in the first story when the wounded general had been laid on one of the couches with which the great hall was already furnished the private secretary retired but remained on the staircase an unnoticed spectator in order to be at hand in case the queen again needed his assistance flushed from the terrible exertion which she had just made with tangled dishevelled locks gasping and moaning cleopatra as if out of her senses tore open her robe beat her breast and lacerated it with her nails then pressing her own beautiful face on her lover's wound to stanch the flowing blood she lavished upon him all the endearing names which she had bestowed on their love his terrible suffering made her forget her own and the sad fate impending tears of pity fell like the refreshing drops of a shower upon the still unwithered blossoms of their love and brought those which during the preceding night had revived anew to their last magnificent unfolding boundless limitless as her former passion for this man was now the grief with which his agonizing death filled her heart all that Mark Antony had been to her in the heyday of life, all their mutual experiences, all that each had received from the other, had returned to her memory in clear and vivid hues during the banquet which had closed a few hours ago. Now these scenes, condensed into a narrow compass, again passed before her mental vision, but only to reveal more distinctly the depth of misery of this hour. At last, Anguish forced even the clearest memories into oblivion. She saw nothing save the tortures of her lover. Her brain, still active, revealed solely the gulf at her feet and the tomb which yawned not only for Antony but for herself unable to think of the happiness enjoyed in the past or to hope for it in the future she gave herself up to uncontrolled despair and no woman of the people could have yielded more absolutely to the consuming grief which rent her heart or expressed it in wilder, more frantic language, than did this great queen, this woman, who as a child had been so sensitive to the slightest suffering, and whose afterlife had certainly not taught her to bear sorrow with patience. After Charmian, at the dying man's request, had given him some wine, he found strength to speak coherently instead of moaning and sighing he tenderly urged cleopatra to secure her own safety if it could be done without dishonour and mentioned proculagus as the man most worthy of her confidence among the friends of octavianus then he entreated her not to mourn for him but to consider him happy for he had enjoyed the richest favours of fortune he owed his brightest hours to her love but he had also been the first and most powerful man on earth now he was dying in the arms of love honourable as a roman who succumbed to romans in this conviction he died after a short struggle cleopatra had watched his last breath closed his eyes and then thrown herself tearlessly on her lover's body at last she fainted and lay unconscious with her head upon his marble breast the private secretary had witnessed all this and then returned with tearful eyes to the second story there he met gorgias who had climbed the scaffolding and told him what he had seen and heard from the stairs but his story was scarcely ended when a carriage stopped at the corner of the muses and an aristocratic roman alighted this was the very procologist whom the dying antony had recommended to the woman he loved as worthy of her confidence in fact gorgias continued he seemed in form and features one of the noblest of his haughty race he came commissioned by octavianus and is said to be warmly devoted to the caesar and a well-disposed man we have also heard him mentioned as a poet and a brother-in-law of Messenus, a wealthy aristocrat he is a generous patron of literature and also holds art and science in high esteem Timagenes lauds his culture and noble nature perhaps the historian was right but where the object in question is the state and its advantage what we here regard as worthy of a free man appears to be considered of little moment at the court of octavianus the lord to whom he gives his services entrusted him with a difficult task and procologus doubtless considered it his duty to make every effort to perform it and yet if i see aright a day will come when he will curse this and the obedience with which he a free man aided caesar but listen erect and haughty in his splendid suit of armour he knocked at the door of the tomb cleopatra had regained consciousness and asked she must have known him in rome what he desired he had come he answered courteously by the command of octavianus to negotiate with her and the queen expressed her willingness to listen but refused to admit him into the mausoleum so they talked with each other through the door with dignified composure she asked to have the sons whom she had given to antony not caesarion acknowledged as kings of egypt proculegius instantly promised to convey her wishes to caesar and gave hopes of their fulfilment while she was speaking of the children and their claims she did not mention her own future the roman questioned her about mark antony's death and then described the destruction of the dead man's army and other matters of trivial importance did not look like a babbler but i felt a suspicion that he was intentionally trying to hold the attention of the queen this proved to be his design he had been merely waiting for Cornelius gallus the commander of the fleet of whom you have heard he too ranks among the chief men in rome and yet he made himself the accomplice of Proculagus the latter retired as soon as he had presented the new-comer to the hapless woman i remained at my post and now heard gallus assure cleopatra of his master's sympathy with the most bombastic exaggeration he described how bitterly octavianus mourned in mark antony the friend the brother-in-law the co-ruler and sharer in so many important enterprises he had shed burning tears over the tidings of his death never had more sincere ones coursed down any man's cheeks Gaulus, too seemed to me to be intentionally prolonging the conversation then while i was listening intently to understand cleopatra's brief replies my foreman who when the workmen were driven away by the romans had concealed himself between two blocks of granite came to me and said that proculagus had just climbed a ladder to the scaffold in the rear of the monument two servants followed and they had all stolen down into the hall i hastily started up i had been lying on the floor with my head outstretched to listen cost what it might the queen must be warned treachery was certainly at work here but i came too late O dion if i had only been informed a few minutes before perhaps something still more terrible might have happened but the queen would have been spared what now threatens her what can she expect from the conqueror who in order to seize her alive condescends to outwit a noble defenceless woman who has succumbed to superior power death would have released the unhappy queen from sore trouble and horrible shame and she had already raised the dagger against her life before my eyes she flung aloft her beautiful arm with the flashing steel which glittered in the light of the candles in the many-branched candelabra beside the sarcophagi but i will try to remain calm you shall hear what happened in regular order my thoughts grow confused as the terrible scene recurs to my memory to describe it as i saw it i should need to be a poet an artist in words for what passed before me happened on a stage you know it was a tomb the walls were of dark stone dark too were the pillars and ceiling all dark and glittering most portions were smoothly polished stone shining like a mirror near the sarcophagi and around the candelabra as far as the vicinity of the door where the rascally trick was played the light was brilliant as in a festal hall every blood-stain on the hand every scratch every wound which the desperate woman had torn with her own nails on her bosom which gleamed snow-white from her black robes was distinctly visible farther away on the right and left the light was dim and near the side-walls the darkness was as intense as in a real tomb on the smooth porphyry columns the glittering black marble and serpentine here there and everywhere flickered the wavering reflection of the candlelight. the draught kept it continually in motion and it wavered to and fro in the hall like the restless souls of the damned wherever the eye turned it met darkness the end of the hall seemed black black as the anteroom of hades yet through it pierced a brilliant moving bar sunbeams which streamed from the stairway into the tomb and amid which danced tiny motes how the scene impressed the eye the home of gloomy hecate and the queen and her impending fate a picture flooded with light standing forth in radiant relief against the darkness of the heavy majestic forms surrounding it in a wide circle this tomb in this light would be a palace meet for the gloomy rule of the king of the troop of demons conjured up by the power of a magician if they have a ruler but where am i wandering the artist i hear you exclaim again the artist instead of rushing forward and interposing he stands studying the light and its effects in the royal tomb yes yes i had come too late too late far too late on the stairs leading to the lower story of the building i saw it but i was not to blame for the delay not in the least at first i had been unable to see the men or even a shadow but i beheld plainly in the brightest glare of the light the body of mark antony on the couch and in the dusk farther towards the right Iris and charmian trying to raise a trap-door it was the one which closed the passage leading to the combustible materials stored in the cellar a sign from the queen had commanded them to fire it the first steps of the staircase down which i was hastening were already behind me then then with two men suddenly dashed from the intense darkness on the other side scarcely able to control myself i sprang down the remaining steps and while iris's shrill cry poor cleopatra they will capture you still rang in my ears i saw the betrayed queen turn from the door through which resolved on death she was saying something to gallus Perceive procula just close behind her thrust her hand into her girdle and with the speed of lightning you have already heard so throw up her arm with the little dagger to bury the sharp blade in her breast. What a picture! In the full radiance of the brilliant light she resembled a statue of triumphant victory or of noble pride in great deeds accomplished, and then then only an instant later what an outrage was inflicted! Like a robber, an assassin, Procologus rushed upon her, seized her arm, and wrested the weapon from her grasp. His tall figure concealed her from me, but when struggling to escape from the ruffian's clutch she again turned her face towards the hall what a transformation had occurred her eyes you know how large they are were twice their usual size and blazed with scorn fury and hatred for the traitor the cheering light had become a consuming fire so i imagine the vengeance the curse which calls down ruin upon the head of a foe and pro- the great lord, the poet, whose noble nature is praised by the authors on the banks of the Tiber, held the defenseless woman, the worthy daughter of a brilliant line of kings, in a firm grasp, as if it required the exertion of all his strength to master this delicate embodiment of charming womanhood. True, the proud blood of the outwitted lioness urged her to resist this profanation, and Proculagus, an enviable honour, made her feel the superior strength of his arm. I am no prophet, but Ion, I repeat, this shameful struggle, and the glances which flashed upon him will be remembered to his dying hour. Had they been darted at me I should have cursed my life. They blanched, even the Roman's cheeks. He was lividly pale as he completed what he deemed his duty. His own aristocratic hands were degraded to the menial task of searching the garments of a woman the queen for forbidden wares poisons or weapons he was aided by one of caesar's freedmen epaphroditus who is said to stand so high in the favor of octavianus the scoundrel also searched Iris and charmian yet all the time both romans constantly spoke in cajoling terms of caesar's favor and his desire to grant cleopatra everything which was due a queen at last she was taken back to Lochius, but i felt like a madman for the image of the unfortunate woman pursued me like my shadow it was no longer a vision of the bewitching sovereign nay it resembled the incarnation of despair tearless anguish wrath demanding vengeance i will not describe it but those eyes those flashing threatening eyes and the tangled hair on which antony's blood had flowed terrible horrible my heart grew chilled as if i had seen upon athena's shield the head of the medusa with its serpent locks It had been impossible for me to warn her in time, or even to seize the traitor's arm, I have already said so, and yet yet her shining image gazed reproachfully at me for my cowardly delay. Her glance still haunts me, robbing me of calmness and peace, not until I gaze into Helena's pure calm eyes will that terrible vision of the face flooded by light in the midst of the tomb cease to haunt me. His friend laid his hand on his arm, spoke soothingly to him and reminded him of the blessings which this terrible day he had said so himself had brought dion was right to give this warning for gorgias's bearing and the very tone of his voice changed as he eagerly declared that the frightful events had been followed by more than happy ones for the city his friend and Barine then with a sigh of relief he continued i pursued my way home like a drunken man every attempt to approach the queen or her attendants was baffled but i learned from charmian's clever nubian that cleopatra had been permitted in caesar's name to choose the palace she desired to occupy and had selected the one at lochias i did not make much progress towards my house the crowd in front of the great gymnasium stopped me octavianus had gone into the city and the people i heard had greeted him with acclamations and flung themselves on their knees before him our stiff-necked alexandrians in the dust before the victor it enraged me but my resentment was diminished the members of the gymnasium all knew me they made way and ere i was aware of it i had passed through the door tall phrixus had drawn my arm through his he appears and vanishes at will is as alert as he is rich sees and hears everything and manages to secure the best places this time he had again succeeded for when he released me we were standing opposite to a newly erected tribune they were waiting for octavianus who was still in the hypostyle of fewer GTs, receiving the homage of the Epitrope, the members of the Council, the Gymnasiarch, and I know not how many others. Phrixus said that on Caesar's entry he had held out his hand to his former tutor, bade him accompany him, and commanded that his son should be presented. The philosopher had been distinguished above everyone else, and this will benefit you and yours, for he is Berenike's brother, and therefore your wife's uncle." What he desires is sure to be granted you will hear at once how studiously the caesar distinguishes him i do not grudge it to the man he interceded boldly for barine he is lauded as an able scholar and he does not lack courage in spite of acting and the only disgraceful deed with which to my knowledge mark antony could be reproached i mean the surrender of Terulius. arius remained here though the imperator might have held the friend of julius caesar's nephew as a hostage as easily as he gave up the emperor's assassin since octavianus encamped before the city your uncle has been in serious danger and his sons shared his peril surely you must know the handsome vigorous young Ephebi. we were not obliged to wait long in the gymnasium ere the caesar appeared on the platform and now if your hand clenches it is only what i expect now all fell on their knees. Our turbulent, rebellious rabble raised their hands like pleading beggars, and grave, dignified men followed their example. Whoever saw me and Phrixus will remember us among the kneeling lickspittles. for had we remained standing we should certainly have been dragged down, so we followed the example of the others. And Octavianus? asked Dion eagerly a man of regal bearing and youthful aspect, beardless face of the finest chiseling, a profile as beautiful as if created for the coin-maker, all the lines sharp and yet pleasing, every inch an aristocrat, but the very mirror of a cold nature, incapable of any lofty aspiration, any warm emotion, any tenderness of feeling, all in all a handsome, haughty, calculating man, whose friendship would hardly benefit the heart, but from whose enmity may the immortals guard all we love. Again he led Arius by the hand, the philosopher's sons, followed the pair, when he stood on the stage looking down upon the thousands, kneeling before him not a muscle of his noble face, it is certainly that, betrayed the slightest emotion. He gazed at us like a farmer surveying his flocks, and after a long silence said curtly in excellent Greek that he absolved the Alexandrians from all guilt towards him. First, he counted as if he were summoning individual veterans to reward them. From respect for the illustrious founder of our city, Alexander, the conqueror of the world. Secondly, because the greatness and beauty of Alexandria filled him with admiration. And thirdly, he turned to Arius as he spoke to give pleasure to his admirable and beloved friend. Then shouts of joy burst forth every one, from the humblest to the greatest, had had a heavy burden removed from his mind, and the throng had scarcely left the gymnasium when they were again laughing, saucily enough, and there was no lack of biting and innocent jests. The fat carpenter Memnon, who furnished the woodwork for your palace, exclaimed close beside me that formerly a dolphin had saved Arius from the pirates. Now Arius was saving marine Alexandria, from the robbers.' so the sport went on philostratus barine's first husband offered the best but for jests the agitator had good reason to fear the worst and now clad in black mourning robes ran after arius whom but a few months ago he persecuted with the most vindictive hatred continually repeating this shallow bit of verse if he is a wise man let the wise aid the wise reaching home was not easy the street was swarming with roman soldiers they fared well enough for in the joy of their hearts many a prosperous citizen who saw his property saved invited individual warriors or even a whole maniple to the taverns or cook-shops and the stock of wine in alexandrian cellars will be considerably diminished to-night many as i have already said had been courted in the houses with orders to spare the property of the citizens and it was in this way that the misfortune with which i commenced my narrative befell the grandmother she died before my departure All the gates of the city will now stand open to you, and the niece of Arius and her husband will be received with ovations. I don't grudge, Barine the good fortune for the way in which your noble wife, who had cast her spell over me too, flung aside what is always dear to the admired city, beauty, and found on the loneliest of islands a new world in love, is worthy of all admiration and praise.' for yourself i dread new happiness and honors if they are added to those which fate bestowed upon you in such a wife and your son pyrrhus the gods would not be themselves if they did not pursue you with their envy i have less reason to fear them ungrateful fellow interrupted his friend there will be numerous mortals to grudge you helena As for me, I have already felt many a slight foreboding, but we have already paid by no means a small tribute to the Divine Ones. The lamp is still burning in the sitting-room. Inform the sisters of their grandmother's death, and tell them the pleasant tidings you have brought us, but reserve until the morning a description of the terrible scenes you witnessed. We will not spoil their sleep. Mark my words, Helena's silent grief and her joy at our escape will lighten your heart and so it proved true gorgias lived over again in his dreams the frightful spectacle witnessed the day before but when the sun of the second day of august rose in full radiance over alexandria and early in the morning boat after boat reached the serpent island landing first berenike and her nephews the sons of the honoured philosopher then clients officials and friends of dion and former favourite guests of barine to greet the young pair and escort them from the refuge which had so long sheltered them back to the city and their midst new and pleasant impressions robbed the gloomy picture of a large portion of its terrors tall phrixus had rapidly spread the news of the place where dion and barine had vanished and that they had long been happily wedded many deemed it well worth a short voyage to see the actors in so strange an adventure and be the first to greet them besides those who knew barine and her husband were curious to learn how two persons accustomed to the life of a great capital had endured for months such complete solitude many feared or expected to see them emaciated and careworn haggard or sunk in melancholy and hence there were a number of astonished faces among those whose boats the freedman pyrrhus guided as pilot through the shallows which protected his island the return of this rare couple to their home would have afforded an excellent opportunity for gay festivities sincerely as the majority of the populace mourned the fate of the queen and gravely as the more thoughtful feared for alexandria's freedom under roman rule all rejoiced over the lenient treatment of the city Their lives and property were safe, and the celebration of festivals had become a life habit with all classes. But the news of the death of Didymus's wife and the illness of the old man, who could not bear up under the loss of his faithful companion, gave Dion a right to refuse any gay welcome at his home. Barine's sorrow was his also, and Didymus died a few days after his wife, with whom he had lived in the bonds of love for more than half a century. People said of a broken heart. So Dion and his young wife entered his beautiful palace with no noisy festivities, instead of the jubilant Hymenaeus, the voice of his own child, greeted him on the threshold. The mourning garments in which Barine welcomed him in the women's apartment reminded him of the envy of the gods which his friend had feared for him, but he often fancied that his mother's statue in the tablinum looked specially happy when the young mistress of the house entered it barine too felt that her happiness as a wife and mother in her magnificent home would have been overwhelming had not a wise destiny imposed upon her just at this time grief for those whom she loved dion instantly devoted himself again to the affairs of the city and his own business he and the woman he loved who had first become really his own during a time of some privation had run into the harbour and gazed quietly at the storms of life the anchor of love which moored their ship to the solid earth had been tested in the solitude of the serpent island chapter twenty three